0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Hi, guys. My name is Hannah Barefoot. I serve on the worship team and the prayer team. And I'm going to be reading today's scripture today, which is Job 1, 8 through 22. So please rise with me to honor the reading of God's word. All right. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? No one else on earth is like him, a man of perfect integrity, who fears God and turns away from evil. Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Haven't you placed a hedge around him, his household, and everything he owns? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch your house ha- stretch out your hand and strike everything he owns. And he will surely curse you to your face. Very well, the Lord said to Satan. Everything he owns is in your power. However, do not lay a hand on Job himself. So Satan left the Lord's presence. One day when Job's sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and reported, while the oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing nearby, the Sabaeans swooped down and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, God's fire fell from heaven. It burned the sheep and the servants and devoured them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. That messenger was still speaking when yet another came and reported, the Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid on the camels, and took them away. They struck down the servants with the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. He was still speaking when another messenger came and reported, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on the young people so that they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job stood up, tore his robe, shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshipped, saying, Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked, I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. And this is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Hannah. I appreciate that. Alicia, talking about um, giving, I'm reminded of something that my last church used to say. They used to say, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take money from a grump. So, (laughs) it's good. It's good. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. We are stoked to have you here this morning. My name is Jared, and I have the privilege of being one of your pastors. It is really an honor to be with you guys. Whether you're joining us online, you're joining us outside, I can hear my son outside. He is excited to be here this morning as well, and, uh, and so we're, we are stoked to have you with us. Welcome to our family gathering. We as a church exist to lead communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and others. That is the key word, healthy relationships, which does not come naturally or easily. It's something we have to work at, and so welcome. You're going to find a lot of broken people here. That's just how it is, and and if, uh, if you're not sure who's broken, it's probably you, so that's good. It's just welcome to the club. That's how it works, and Jesus said that all of this, though, the way that we get healthy really comes from two things we have to focus on. He said the first is that we have to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every part of our being falls in love with him, follows him for who he is, not what he gives us. And the second, he said, is equal to it. He said you have to learn to love people in the same way. But to love your neighbor doesn't just mean the people that like you back, the people that love you back, but to literally it means to extend the same rights, to extend the same grace, to extend the same um, belief about the intentions that you would give yourself to people around you, even those people that you really don't want to. That's the extent we're called to love other people. That's why I say it doesn't come naturally. That is a really difficult thing to do. But the Bible says everything is summed up in those two focuses. If we can do those things well, we have learned what it means to excuse me, to follow Jesus. But what you'll find is that we really can't do that on a Sunday morning. Right? I mean, I, I love sitting at the front door and trying to say hi to you guys, but it's like a whirlwind of, of trying to say hi, and, and God forbid if somebody stops, like then there's 10 other people that are trying to say hi as you walk by and it's just like, ah thing, right? Which is fun. So forgive me. If you're one of the people that tries to stop, I'm doing the best I can on a Sunday morning. You know, there's just, it is what it is. But I do love saying hi to you guys. I love being able to at least shake your hand or fist bump or, you know, COVID air high five or whatever we got to do. And so that part's fun. But we don't get to the depth of what it means to have a relationship. We can't have a meaningful, long discussion on a Sunday morning. Right? Even here, you get a chance to kind of do that. But really where this happens then is in lunch afterwards. On San Fernando, when you go walk to Over Under or Chipotle or whatever else it is. It's in the coffee shops. It's hanging out uh, at Ugly Mug or, or Coffee Commissary or one of the other myriad of little places that I haven't yet discovered, but I'm looking for one. So if you find a place with a good pour over, let me know. Right? Those are the places that relationships are developed. It's around the dinner table. It's inviting people into our homes and into our spaces and into our lives It's in our community groups where we do life on life together, in our DNA groups where we have accountability with each other. It's all these shared life experiences that we actually begin to learn how to have healthy relationships with Jesus and people. Guess what? It comes in the conflict. Right? It's easy to be friends with somebody when there's no conflict. It's like, cool, they don't take anything of me. They don't require anything of me. But how easy is it to be friends with somebody when it's this constant battle? that's really where true friendship, where true brotherhood, where true sisterhood is made though. And this is what God is calling us into and you will see how this comes together. So what are Sunday mornings, what's the point of Sunday mornings then? Uh, This is where we we come together and celebrate our wins. We come together and and we we share the grief of our losses. We come together and, and, and it's really, Sunday mornings are not about us, it's about Jesus. And so we come together to bring what we have left of us from the week before and go, God, I don't know if I can make another week without you. But it feels good to be around other people who are feeling the same way. And we thank you that you sustain us as we bring what we have to you. Sunday mornings are about Jesus, and we come to lift him up, to worship together, to get refilled in some senses, but to give whatever little we have left and say, God, we rely everything entirely on you. Amen. This morning, we are starting a new series on the book of Job called The Sufferer. You're like, yay, that's inspiring. It's awesome. I can't, why did I come to church this morning? But the reality is, is that all of us will experience suffering. All of us will experience, uh, experience pain and hurt and heartache. And, and listen, uh, there's things in our life that we go through and we look at other people and we go, man, thank God I haven't had to deal with that. But the truth is that each one of us experiences that pain and that suffering, that heartache in ways that are really, uh, that matter to us, that hurt us. If you've ever been around somebody who, uh, who is truly a pet person, okay, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm talking like to the place where they got a stroller and you're like, oh, what a cute kid. Oh, that's your dog. Okay, I got, I got it. All right. Okay, I'm not judging, I'm just saying. Uh, if you've ever been around somebody who's lost a pet, you ever had this conversation where somebody's just devastated and you're talking to them and they're talking about their loss, but they're not telling you it's a pet, they're just using the name and you're like, oh my God, their child died. And then you find out it's their beloved cat of 15 years, and you're like, cats are a white meat. Why does it matter if a cat dies? That's not a, that's a terrible, okay, sorry. <clears throat> they are tasty, though. I got to admit, it is good, so. <laughs> oh, pastor, your Filipino showing. I'm so oh, sorry. <laughs> okay, back on track, people. We're talking about suffering <laughs> you got to have some levity in this moment or oh, this is going to be a tough message. Okay, people, this is, these are the jokes. All right, bear with me. Whew. The elders are like, oh, what did we do? It's all right. But here's the thing. Uh, we can take other people's pain for granted when we're like, well, it's just your pet. Get over it. But the reality is things impact us and affect us differently. And it's hard to really get into somebody else's shoes because we can't fully understand the suffering because suffering really is made up of the the summation of our experiences. Isn't that true? And things affect us in different ways. Oftentimes, if you've ever been to therapy, you'll find things are so related And so something happens, and you're like, why am I reacting so much to this? You find out, oh, duh. It's because it's tied to these other 12 things, and this brings up other stuff in my life I never even realized we're connected. And oh my gosh, that's why we need therapists. Hello. (laughs) But when we suffer, there's usually questions that come up for us. And those questions that usually come out of our mouth are, why me? Why this? Why now? Why us? Why, why, why? But really, those questions are pointing to a much deeper question that is, how can a good God allow evil and suffering? No one in here has ever asked that question, right? Or God, where were you? Where are you when I need you? this book of the Bible, Job is one of the ones that's most famous for uh, answering some of these questions for us. It is actually the oldest book in the Bible, somewhere around 6,000 years old, we believe. And so actually Genesis is not the oldest. Job is one of the oldest. I think that's uh, perfect for understanding that these are the questions that have been around since the beginning of human history. Now, some people believe that the book of Job is allegorical. I I don't believe that. I I think this book is is real. I think it's intended to help us understand both the character and nature of God and the character and nature of mankind. It's found right before the Psalms, and so if you open your Bible up to the middle, you're going to find, uh, I do recommend a, a physical Bible. It's really good. Uh, electronic Bibles are great. They're awesome because you can carry them everywhere. It's usually on your phone. But there's something about a physical Bible that helps writing in it. I promise you don't go to hell for writing in your Bible, okay? God does not strike you the lightning it. It's really good. Highlight, underline, write notes to yourself, write questions to yourself. Did you know it's okay to question God? This is a perfect book to start with if you haven't. And so write those questions down and watch what happens. God answers those questions over time. And what's amazing is as you begin to read the Bible, as you wrestle with it, you'll come back to those questions and God will have answered those for you and it becomes a sense of victory for you. Or you'll find that the question still hasn't been answered and it pushes you deeper into a relationship with Him. Ultimately, that's what I'm Hoping will happen with this book. We're not going to teach you the entire book. In fact, I'm only really taking three portions over the next couple of weeks out. I'm going to take the, the beginning portion of what kicks this book off. We're going to take the response of his friends and what they say to him about his suffering, And then lastly, we're going to get to God's answer and what God tells him in the storm. And so I'm kind of highlighting these really key moments in the book. But what I want it to do is push you deeper into the Word. I want it to push you deeper into reading Job. The next time that you suffer or struggle or are facing trials, I want you to go look at Job. And now you'll have a framework or an understanding after this series to look into it. But I want you to wrestle for yourself. Why? Because there's something that happens in that wrestling. That's something that happens in that reading. I can't answer all the questions of your heart. I never will be able to, especially not in 30 to 35 minutes on a Sunday morning. But if we can push each other deeper, if we can challenge each other to go deeper into who God is in his scriptures and to wrestle with God and know it's okay and to bring others into that wrestling around us, we will find that we will have a much deeper relationship with the God of all the universe. Amen? It's okay to respond to, all right? It's, it's good. You can talk in church. It's all right. <laughs> The other thing I want to say before we get into this is this passage kind of sucks. Like, this is not the easiest passage for a pastor to stand up and be like, I can't wait, I'm so excited, God and Satan are talking in a room. (laughs) And Satan's like, yeah, God, this guy doesn't really love you, it just loves your stuff. And God's like, sure, have Adam go for it. Like, that is not the most enjoyable passage for a pastor to be like, woohoo, I'm looking forward to that Sunday. And, and part of the problem is because I can't really answer the questions for you. No one can, because no one can truly understand God. See, there's this, there's this part of us that wants to understand God and put Him inside of our human frameworks, but the reality is, is that we could truly understand God's thoughts and God's ways, and the reason behind the things that God does, that means that we could actually understand God, which would mean that our minds... Or on some sort of similar plane, some sort of same level as God, that the smartest among us could think in the ways that God could think, or at least we could build tech that would help us to think in the way that God could think. But if it is as God says it is, in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, "...for my thoughts are not your thoughts." and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. If it's like that for real, then we cannot fully understand or comprehend the how and why of what God does, even if he condescended himself to come and explain it to us. We couldn't. Now, it doesn't make us feel better. You're like, woohoo, this is encouraging already. But it's something we have to consider when we start wrestling through these answers. When we're asking God why, we have to understand that we cannot comprehend the entirety of who God is and why he does things. And so there is this sense of keeping that in the back of the mind as we ask these questions. Now, speaking of not making us feel better, let's dig a little deeper into this exchange between God and Satan from our scripture today. Now, I can't speak for all of us, but if you've been a Christian for any length of time, I know there are people here who have not. You're still checking out this Jesus thing. That's awesome. I love it. But for those who have been Christians for any length of time, we have this tendency to sort of gloss over scripture, to like trivialize the moment. And so here we have this story of of, of God and Satan meeting together. Satan makes an accusation, says, God, he doesn't love you for you. He loves you for your stuff excuse me, and he says, if you take all that away, he's not going to love you. He's not going to be a righteous man. And so God says, okay, go ahead. And you have this taking away of stuff. Now we forget the society they lived in doesn't look like our society. And so what I want to do is put this in a modern perspective. Now, this is just Jared. This isn't the Bible. Okay. I'm just going to rephrase this in a modern way. This is just my interpretation of what this might look like. So I'm, it's not a new version of Scripture, okay? So I'm going modernize to modernize verse 13 to 19 for your under family. Now, for, for this. Now, I want you to imagine with me for a moment. Imagine with me you have an amazing life, okay? You're married. You have four kids. They're incredible kids. They went to the best schools. They got the best grades, and now they're in society, they are super successful and super productive, they are in, and they're well respected in what they do. I said, imagine, it's okay. <laughs> you own two businesses that have done very well, and you are known as much for your business acumen as you are for your generosity with time and money to every single person that enters your sphere. You are well-loved and well-respected because not just how successful you've been, but because you do it with a sense of humility and generosity. You're a pillar in the community. One day you're working from home. When you get a call from your spouse saying that they're trying to pay for lunch, but all the cards seem not to be working, and they're wondering what is going on. And as you are talking to your spouse Your front door is smashed in and the FBI and the IRS come rushing in saying that they are seizing all of your personal belongings. All of your accounts have been frozen for the foreseeable future and you must get out right now. You see your car being loaded on the tow truck as you look through the splinters of your front door. But as you are processing that, an employee from one of your businesses comes in in a panic and says, "Uh, didn't you hear? We've been trying to get a hold of you, but your business just burnt down. And there's as much damage from the fire, uh, I mean, from the water that the fireman just put on the building as the fire. And it's a complete and total loss. As they are speaking, another one of your employees, she comes up to you and she says, I just been trying to get a hold of you all day. Didn't you hear? that your most trusted friend in your business initiated a hostile takeover. The board just voted you out. Even though you're the founder, it's done. You are off the property. You no longer have any say in your business. And while you are, they are still talking, you see a police officer and a police chaplain walk up your driveway. Your four kids were catching up. Over lunch and a driver drove up the sidewalk and struck all four children while they were hanging out and they just died. As you go to sit in your favorite chair, the agents grab it and walk out. This is still maybe a a scenario that's too far for us to even Fathom, but, but, but look at the way Scripture is written. It was one after another. It wasn't this and then, and then some time and you can deal with it. It was constant and, and overwhelming in the loss. How would you feel in this moment? How would you respond? As we begin to process through our own suffering, or even sometimes it's not even us, sometimes it's the suffering around us, the people around us. There are some things that are beneficial to recognize that this is hard. There aren't easy answers for this. It's not like I can stand up here and be like, hey guys, A plus B equals C, and then we're all good, right? No more suffering, it's all happy. It doesn't work that way, and we know it doesn't work that way. There's something wrong inside of us. Listen, one of the reasons this stuff sits so, uh, so, un- it's so unsettling for us is because we were not created for this. No. There's a reason that death doesn't sit right for us because we were not created for death. And so it's always, I love the movie The Matrix, he says it's like a splinter in your mind. You know it's not supposed to be there. Suffering and pain and death is like this splinter that we know is not supposed to be there. But can we agree also, not only that it's hard, but that we can't answer this with religious cliches? Can we just stop that right now? We say these things to make us feel better, to make us feel in control, but we say things like, well, everything happens for a reason. Yeah, sometimes the reason is you're stupid and make stupid choices, and so you get the consequences of those things. (laughs) Sometimes people are just jerks and things happen to you, Sometimes things don't just happen for a reason. Sometimes it's just because there's sin and brokenness and evil of this world. So stop giving cliche platitudes. Or this one, which is not scriptural. God will never give you anything more than you can handle. Uh Guys, that's the opposite of the Bible. God gives you everything we cannot handle. That's why we need Him. That's why we need each other. That is the premise of the gospel, that we couldn't do anything ourselves. And yet we still give these answers like, you got strength in you. Don't worry, all you need is yourself. Just try harder, work harder. And these type of answers actually take us away from the healing process instead of letting us sit in the process of pain. Let me say that again. Those type of answers take us away from the healing process instead of letting us sit in the process of pain. And so if you're taking notes today, this is the first observation We must avoid pat answers. We must avoid pat answers. Canned answers, just cliche answers. We must avoid those answers. When suffering strikes, there are two ways that people tend to respond. The more religious person says, what am I doing wrong? Why is God punishing me? Those of us who fall into this category, the only answer then can be, well, I just need to have more faith. I need to work harder to show God that I'm worthy of his blessing or there must be something wrong in my life. I need to, uh, to inventory. Let me go back through my 12 steps. I need to inventory something so I can figure out what it is that I'm actually failing God in. If I just clean that area up, then God will restore his blessing to me. And if I do, I won't be sick or broke anymore. The more cynical people say, see, this sickness or this poverty or this pain is going on. It proves God doesn't exist, that he doesn't care about you, or that he's incompetent at best. These are the approaches of both moralism and cynicism. But immediately the book of Job shows this is not correct. In verses 1 to 5, we skipped it today, but when you go back and read it, you'll see the kind of guy that Job is. The Bible says he's a man of complete integrity. That's the kind of integrity that is full of integrity even when no one is watching, even when there's nothing to be gained from it. A man who is known for doing the right thing all the time. He's wealthy in every way, and it seems everything he has has done, does, and has is blessed. But even more, He has a deep love and a deep respect for God. It says that he's so concerned with living rightly that he even offers sacrifices for his kids in the event that maybe possibly they might have accidentally even sinned. And so Job is constantly on the the intense like, okay, I'm trying to be really aware. Is there anything that we could have possibly done? God, this matters to me. Job is the model for everyone to imitate And that's a context that we pick up this story in verse 8, where God tells Satan, have you seen Job? This guy is awesome. And Satan responds, hey, again, he's only awesome because you gave him these fantastic gifts. I mean, who wouldn't be awesome? you have blessed the heck out of this guy. Take that away and he won't even love you. God says, fine, take his stuff, but don't touch him. And Satan comes in and obliterates everything that God has. I mean, everything that Job has. Now, the story goes on. Right? From there, uh, if you haven't read it, the story goes on from there. Job remains faithful to God and Satan comes back and says, well, you know, it really wasn't his stuff. It's really his own life that he values. And God says, all right, you can make him sick to the point of death, but you can't kill him. He's still mine. Right? So Satan goes in and he screws with his health. He ends up pretty bad. And this is where his friends are like, we'll see their response. It's pretty bad. Even his wife is like, just curse God and die. Which, right? (laughs) Which begs a question, you know, I wonder if Job ever went, God, you got rid of my kids. Like my wife, you left her? Like what happened here? Like, I don't know. Right? So, I'm just saying Didn't say it was a good question. I said you got to wonder at some point, Job's got to be like, "Come on, God, what did you do here?" But this brings up this section, this question of like how can God play games with us? He's he's Why is he talking to Satan? And then he's talking to Satan and he's there and he's like, really, they're having some sort of like bet over whether Job is going to be faithful or not? Is this how God responds to us? And despite our natural tendency to explain this through either moralism or cynicism, neither is correct. We have to understand God's asymmetrical relationship with suffering. See, God doesn't come up with the idea, does he? No, who does? Satan. Satan is the one who goes out and does it. God isn't the one that does it. See, when God created the world, He didn't create a world where this was, uh, where death existed. He didn't create a world where windstorms and hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes, floods, killed people. We created that world when we brought sin into that world by rejecting God's call and God's leading over our life. And we said we want to be in control instead of God being in control. When we did that as humanity, we brought sin into this place and we ended up with a world that we have now. In addition, because we didn't follow God's way of controlling the world and listening to his leading, we also didn't handle the environment the way that we were supposed to. God told us to lead in a way where everything brought glory to him. And you can look around us and see we clearly did not do that. God does not actively, directly generate the suffering. But notice, he is in complete control. Satan still has to ask God for permission. Now, what does this mean? This is hard for us to understand, but we don't see two equal forces opposing each other. I think a lot of times we see the the portrayal of God and Satan as equal and opposite. And they're, they're waging this war that, that's like, gosh, who's going to win? But the truth is that Satan is not in any way over God. That there is nothing he can do that, that God cannot overrule. Amen? Yeah. So we see God overruling the evil that Satan wants. He permits it, but he limits it. You can do this. You can touch his stuff, but you cannot touch his body. You can touch his body, but you cannot take his life. God... God allows it to happen, but he limits the scope and the perspective. And so we understand, we have to ask the question then, why? God allows this. This is my understanding of Scripture, that God allows Satan to accomplish the opposite of Satan, whatever Satan wants to accomplish through his plan. So God allows suffering in order to bring about the opposite of what Satan is trying to accomplish. What does Satan want in Job's life? On the one hand, he wants Job discredited As a man of righteousness. Why? Because Job is an example to the others around him. God says, look at this guy. There's no one else as righteous as him. People look to him and they go, what does Job do? Job points to God in everything he does. And Job's very existence and even his blessing, he's like, God. And guess what? Even when he's cursed, he points to God. Job's entire life, good and bad, points to God. And so Satan doesn't only want him discredited, now he's upset because taking the stuff away still pointed to God. Now he wants to take his life. On the other hand, he wants Job to reject his faith and trust in God. You don't even have to know the story to know that it didn't work. God hates evil. He is against it. But he permits it in Job's life only to the amount that it gives Satan, the amount of rope Satan needs to hang himself Satan is only allowed to do what he does in order to bring about his own destruction. This tells us two things, right? What did Satan do? Satan's like, hey, let's make a public spectacle of Job. And what did that public spectacle do? Job didn't renounce his faith. In fact, there's something incredible you're going to see later. We're going to talk about this again. But the word that Job uses for God in chapter 1 is a different term that he uses for God in, in chapter 42. After God responds to him, the term that he uses for God is an intimate relationship to God the beginning is God as creator as master as Lord the last word he uses for God is my savior my personal God there's something that happens to Job in the midst of this and God is honored through this suffering and so what Satan wanted the exact opposite happened because of what happened that God allowed and so Satan is only allowed to do those things to bring about his destruction again this tells us two things this is probably the way that God works in our lives that God allows pain and suffering. He doesn't cause them, but He allows pain and suffering to happen in our life in order to actually defeat the purposes of evil. To bring about in us the things that God wants to bring credit and glory to Him, to lift up His name so that our lives can be an example to the goodness, the faithfulness, the mercy of God. But the second thing, and this is a spoiler alert for the entire book, Job never hears why he suffers. There is never an answer given. There's a whole answer of God in the storm to Job where God answers Job's, uh, hey God, where are you? What's happening here? But listen, there is not one single time in this entire 42 chapters where you get a reason why. Which probably means that's going to be true in your life too. He never says, hey, Job, don't worry. For the rest of human history, you're going to be an example. They're going to talk about you on a Sunday morning in Burbank. So don't worry about it. It's all good. It doesn't happen. The moralist says, oh, the reason you're suffering is you're not living right. You need more faith. The cynic said, see God is out to lunch. This is all on you anyway. Both of those are pat answers. These are answers we tell ourselves to feel like we're feeling in control. The truth is all sin comes down to control. All sin comes down to control. If you're taking notes today, this is the second observation for the day. We must be willing to live without an answer. We must be willing to Live, sorry. That's probably my fault. Live, not leave. You can leave without an answer. You're probably going to leave here without an answer too. I'm just saying. I type really fast sometimes. We must be willing to live without an answer. The moralist just says, if you do this and this and this, God has to bless you, right? Like if you show you're worthy of blessing, God has to. He's, he's going to be manipulated by you. And he's going to have to bless you. All you have to do is work to make your situation better. And God's going to meet you halfway. You hear this. Crud when you hear this statement, God helps those who. The cynic says, You don't owe God anything, so do whatever you want. What does it matter? God's not going to be there for you anyway. Why bother? The Bible says, Those are not the answers. The Bible calls us to obey and serve a God we cannot control. The Bible calls us to obey and serve a God we cannot control, but that is scary because that means we are out of control. But I also want to point out there's a big difference between trust and faith. Can we get a little Christianese here for a minute? Let me explain the difference between trust and faith. Trust is when God tells us, or somebody tells us, do this and this will happen. And you go, okay, I trust you. I trust you. Faith is when God says, go, go, and I'm not going to tell you where. And you go, but I, I, what is it good? Is it going to be bad? Or can you give me an example of where we're going to head? And God's like, nope, just go. I got you. And you're like, okay, I'm walking. God, are you? You saw I take a step, right? You, stop, go. We, we actually treat God like red light, green light. We're like, okay, God, I took. God's like, just walk, people. Like, I, I already told you, just go. Okay, but if you would just tell me where I'm going to end up, that would be great. That's trust, not faith. Trust is when we know where we're going and we say, okay, God, I know you're going to get me there. It doesn't make it easy. It just means that we we understand. And so often we get to these times of suffering or pain or frustration with God. We're like, God, if you just tell me the outcome, then I can trust you because I already know how it's going to end and I'll be fine in that case. That is called control. This is exactly what we see happening in Job's ordeal. God says, Job loves me wholly and completely. Satan says, no, he doesn't. He loves your prosperity. Those things go away. I mean, honestly, God, Job's just networking you. It's really all it is. Was Satan right about Job? Well, yes and no. At the end of the first quarter, it's Job one, Satan zero. But we do see after Job loses his stuff, he bows to God and says, this stuff isn't important. You're the answer. But if we get into the book, there's still this self-centeredness in Job. We see this. We see this part of like, God, I, I don't deserve this. Don't you know who I am for you? He gets a little bit of that. Yeah. And We hear this all the time in our own stuff. Again, if I just, God, if you just tell me what's happening, I'll be fine. God, if you just give me an answer of, of, to the why or give me an answer of where I'm going to go, then you know what? I'll, I'll, I'll trust you then. I'll have faith in you then. But what's happening is, then what we're asking for is basically saying, God, if you just tell me that I'm going to be blessed at the end of this, What are we actually saying? We're saying, God, I actually really want your blessing more than I want you. We actually come to this place where we want the gifts instead of the giver, and we end up treating God as some sort of cosmic ATM. The only way to not love the gifts over the person who gives the gifts is to actually not know why we suffer. That is the only way. Because otherwise we go right back to, well, yeah, but I know this is going to be good and he's going to give me this stuff. There can't be a reason giving to all our suffering or we will not be the person who loves God above his gifts. And so guess what? We have to embrace not knowing. So how do we actually do this? How do I make it through these times, Jared? One of the most important lessons I've learned over the past decade is that these times of true suffering and pain are actually the most beneficial for me. I hate saying that. You've heard the saying that God closes the door so he can open a window. I think that's not true. You know what I think is more true? I think that God closes the door so the house can fall on you. I think the more often God does that is because my tendency is to try and get out of the situation where pain and suffering and and hardship actually pushes down on me. We might describe it at that time like, I can't breathe. You know what I'm talking about? You're talking about that place where you can't sleep at night because your mind won't turn off because you're trying to figure out, like, where is the help going to come from in this? I have no other way out of this. That, that Some of us might have even experienced that depression that feels like your chest is being crushed. The part where it, it just hurts to eat even. Some of you know what I'm talking about. But in escaping the pressure of that trial or that suffering, I can miss the formation of my faith. What do I mean? Guys, I've experienced a lot of death around me this year. A lot of close people around me have passed away. I wouldn't have chosen to see my son's seizure disorder run rampant and out of control as soon as we moved here. On top of his Down syndrome and his autism. I wouldn't choose for my father-in-law to have stage four cancer. Those are all areas that I would be like, I'm happy without those things, God. I can learn from you without those moments. But I can tell you what those moments are doing right now in my life. That I'm learning how to rely more completely and more dependently on Jesus. I'm learning how to be a better husband as I walk my wife through the upcoming passing of her father. I'm learning how to be a better father as I wrestle through the things that my son is experiencing. And guess what? I'm learning actually to be more compassionate and more patient and more caring for the people around me because of the care and the compassion that I need as I go through this time. And as I look back over all of the, the things in my life, the hurts that have happened to me, some because of other people and some because of my own choices, I, I, I look back and I realize that God is continuing to mold me and shape me and make me into a a person who is different, who reflects Him better, not in the good times, but in the hard times. I have more trust and faith because there's nowhere else to turn in these moments. The moments that no doctor, no medicine, no Christian platitude can make better. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 5. He says in Romans 5, verses 1 to 5, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. That's important. You can circle that word peace if you run to this again. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. We also have obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in this grace, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, check this verse out. We boast. In our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces what? Hope. This hope will not disappoint us. It's a promise of God, and God's word is always fulfilled. We will have hope, but not just some random hope, the hope that is backed up by the promises of God. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. James says the same thing. James chapter one verses two to four says, "Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing." Jesus isn't just saying, "Hey, hang in there. Everything's going to be fine." He's saying the process of suffering is not something that he creates, but that he will use. Even though the enemy means it for evil, God will work it out for our best good and for the good of the kingdom of God. Amen? The suffering that we go through is important for the development of our faith and the working out of our salvation. Does it make it fair? No, it does not. Does it make the thing that happened to us good? No, it does not. Does it make the person that perpetrated the crime against us right or good in any way? No, it does not. And the justice of God will still be carried out in their life. Absolutely. You believe that? Good. We do have to forgive them. But it's much easier forgiving them knowing that God will handle that instead of us. That they will face what they need to face because of God's justice. And listen, anything you can imagine happening to somebody that's hurt you, Jesus bore on the cross. He actually took the punishment for that person's sin, and so you really can't, like, there's a lot of things we wish we could do to things, to people that hurt us, right? (laughs) Jesus took it physically, but even more than that, he took not just this incredible torture, this incredible beating, this horrific death, but he also took the separation from God. He, he took that, that, that brokenness upon himself. There is nothing that we can do to anybody else that God hasn't doled out to the point of death. If you are taking notes today, this is the third and final observation. This really does point us to exactly what we were just talking about, that we must anticipate the final answer. I love this. Job isn't inhuman. I love the, the Bible. It's so real. It's so messed up. There's so much junk in here. If you don't know where it is, I'll help you find it. There is plenty of junk in the Bible. Job tears his clothes and cries out. And the Bible doesn't call it sin, right? The Bible isn't expecting us to be like, all right, everything's great, you know? Job, I lost my kids. That's okay, I'll go make some more. woo He doesn't just say, oh, well, right? Job puts everything in the proper perspective. He, he enters a sense of true grieving and humility. I love the way it describes it in verse 20. Job tears his clothes. This is a sign of deepest grief, deepest sorrow, and even repentance. He shaves his head, which is usually tied to a vow. saying, God, I, I am all yours. And he falls to the ground in worship. Falling to the ground does not indicate somebody who is in control, does it? He falls to the ground. It's absolute grief and helplessness. And yet amid these horrible things, Job worships God. How does he do it? He states what's true. He states what's true. It's like he must literally remind himself of the truth or the torrents of pain will actually wash him away. When Job reaches the end of himself, he says, I came to this earth with nothing and I'm leaving this way. He's like, I'm out. I got nothing else. God, I can't go on. You notice that statement, I'm leaving Job is like, there's, not, there's nothing more. This is an end. Job is going, I can't even live anymore. I'm in this place where there is nothing left for me. Don't gloss over that. But he says, everything I have is a gift of grace. God gave it to me. All these things were his from the beginning. Who am I to complain if he takes them away? Listen, we cannot have the Job of verses 21 and 22 if we don't have the Job of verse 1. The man of righteousness who loves God. We have to have a relationship with God We have to love and fear God. There's a deep lesson for us in this. If we build our life and reputation on our things or the people around us, then when suffering hits, it will pull us away from the very foundation of who we are. It'll make us more angry, depressed, and bitter. But if our life, if our identity, if our security, if our worth is based on who Jesus says we are, the value is built on who God is, then suffering drives us deeper into the source of our joy. It drives us deeper into a relationship with Him. But see, the lie of Satan is he doesn't want us there. He wants to discredit us and those around us by saying, God will not be here for us. And so the lie of Satan is that if we give ourselves totally to God, He will betray us, that we cannot trust Him. That He won't just take everything from us, He'll abandon us too. We buy into this all the time. It's actually the reason that we want things and security so that we can actually, uh, and comfort and success, because we want physical proof that God cares about us. When these things are inconsistent or uncertain, we turn to God and say, see, I knew it deep down, you didn't care about me. That's Satan's lie. Look at the suffering around you. Look at the suffering of people there. God isn't consistent. God doesn't care. God isn't there. God doesn't know how bad it is for you. You don't matter to Him. But those things, comfort and security, blessing, are not the things we need to look at to see that God loves us. The question we will always have to address in our lives is, do we believe that God is who He says He is? Do we believe God is who He says He is? But we can't answer that question unless we have a relationship with Him in the first place. Without knowing God, Job could never have had faith in him. In verse 22, it says, throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. That word blame is actually like a legal term. It means more like bring criminal charges against. Job recognizes God's sovereignty and control, even as Job grieves and hurts. And it's Job's trust and faith in God that leads Job to experience both hurt and loss and pain at the exact same time he worships. You notice that worship doesn't come afterwards. Worship doesn't come when things have been made right. Worship comes right in the middle because Job knows this is the only place I can turn. Worship and pain are not exclusive, but they can coexist together because of love that Job has for God. But there's one more aspect to this we need to address, and then we'll finish up. When Job suffered, he was only relatively innocent. Like us, Job was born into sin. We were born spiritually dead. The Bible says that we, we can't wake ourselves up. Only God could have raised us to life spiritually And even though uh, it talks about Job being a righteous man, that doesn't mean that he didn't sin. Job still had sin. And so Job had this born into death part of him, but he also made his own choices that were against God's will. And so his own choices brought him sin as well. Jesus was the only truly innocent sufferer, the only one who was completely and perfectly sinless. Job felt like God abandoned him, but Jesus was completely abandoned. Jesus obeyed God completely and fully, and yet God sent Him to the cross on our behalf. Jesus served God truly for nothing in return. He did it for us to bring glory to God by bringing us back into relationship with the Father. That is our proof that God loves us, that we have what we need. That is what we need to look at to see that God is faithful and consistent and real. That's the final answer. Amen? Amen. As we transition from our message today to a time of communion, I want us to stop and think about the truth that I just presented. Jesus was the only truly innocent sufferer, the one who was perfectly and completely sinless. Jesus obeyed God completely and fully and thoroughly, and yet God sent him to the cross on our behalf, that Jesus served God for truly nothing in return, doing that for us to bring glory to God by bringing us back into a relationship with him, would you take a moment this morning before you take the bread and the juice and go back to your seat and take that with your family or your community group, your DNA group, before you take that in community, would you take a moment and think about what it means that Jesus was so innocent and yet took that death that pain, that suffering on himself. Would you have a conversation with Jesus in your heart over that truth? Then feel free to participate in communion as the Lord leads you. In a moment, we're going to pray over communion, but I want to stop and think about some real suffering happening in our world right now. Right now, there are Christians in Afghanistan who are literally running in fear for their lives. There are families, men and women, children who are Dying, afraid for their lives without power, without food in Louisiana. Suffering from the hurricane aftermath, the same in New York. There are still many, many, many people in Haiti that are absolutely devastated right now. There are countless people across the world and places the news will never bring us stories of or word about. My pastor friends in Russia have been being arrested wholesale for baptizing people in the name of Jesus. Many of them are facing Job moments in ways that we here cannot even begin to imagine. Not to make light of any suffering that's going on in our lives. We have plenty of suffering here in this church. I know it. I get it. But let's keep a global perspective that we are not the only ones in this world. We're not the world. doesn't revolve around Los Angeles. And so would you pray with me? That the goodness of God would be seen in the midst of this darkness in our life and the lives of those around us. That God would be glorified and that what is meant for evil would be redeemed for good. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are faithful and good, even we, when we cannot understand why. You are holy and righteous. You care in ways we cannot comprehend. You are faithful. You never leave us or abandon us. God, we can't possibly imagine why you do the things the way that you do. And there are times when, God, it leaves me at such a loss to understand you or even to explain you. But I thank you that we don't have to. That we know that you have promised that whatever evil happens in our life that you will use for the best good in us and through us for your glory and for your kingdom. And so Lord, all these places we've mentioned and the ones we don't even know about. For the lives in this church, in this city, in this community, in this state, for the lives in this country and all over, Lord, would you continue to be the light in the darkness? Would you allow your church to stop talking and be your helping hand? To be the people who model love, and care in the midst of tragedy to be the ones whose lives, both in good times and in tragedy, point to you. We remember you for your grace, your mercy. We remember that you are the model for us to follow Jesus. In your name we pray.